Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8 this morning. Exodus chapter 8. I'll tell you, listen to that song. I got a little help there. Did you get a little help from that song? I got a little help from it. You know, there ain't never been a storm he hasn't been sufficient for. You might say, well, preacher, you ain't been through everything. That's true. That's true. I thank the Lord, too. I don't want more storms than I have to. But I just, I just am amazed that there's never been a storm I've gone through that he hadn't been enough for. There's never been a storm that you've gone through you hadn't been enough for. You know, I've never met anybody that knows and loves God that's ever ever said that He failed them. I've seen people that don't know God that claim that God failed them. But I've never met anybody that knows God, that loves God. You know, there's people that I love that have failed me and people that love me, though I have failed them. And they would say, well, I love preacher, but he let me down on this or he let me down on that. And you know, even if God did fail us, we still would and should love Him. But isn't it a testimony that I ain't never met anybody that loves Him that would say, well, you know, I love God, but He let me down. Everybody that knows and loves God will always give the same testimony. Man, He's never let me down. He's always been sufficient. He's always been enough for anything that I've ever gone through. I'm encouraged. You don't know what storms may show up in your life in the next few weeks, months, years. But I'll tell you this, the God, if you know God, then the God that's present in your life is enough for whatever storms may arise. Exodus chapter number 8 this morning. Now, I am keenly aware that I have fed you a bunch of heavy breakfast food and then dragged you in here to preach to you. That is not lost on me. So that means two things. One, it means I'm on notice this morning, and I am keenly aware of that. Number two, it means all you folks that weren't there to eat breakfast are going to have to amen a double portion, all right? Because the, the people in Sunday school ate your portion of breakfast. So you're going to have to amen their portion of the amen in this morning. Help me a little bit in the preaching. Exodus chapter number 8. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Exodus chapter 8, verse number 1. The Word of God says that the Lord spake unto Moses. And this is what He said. Go unto Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. And if thou refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all thy borders with frogs. And the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into thine house and into thy bedchamber and upon thy bed and into the house of thy servants and upon thy people and into thine ovens and into thy kneading frogs. And the frogs shall come up both on thee and upon thy people and upon all thy servants. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch forth thine hand with thy rod over the streams, over the rivers and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up upon the land of Egypt. And Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs upon the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may do sacrifice unto the Lord. Moses said unto Pharaoh, Glory over me. When shall I entreat for thee and for thy servants? and for thy people to destroy the frogs from thee and thy houses, that they may remain in the river only. And he said, Tomorrow. And he said, Be it according to thy word, that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. And the frogs shall depart from thee, and from thy houses, and from thy servants, and from thy people. They shall remain in the river only. Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried unto the Lord because of the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, out of the villages, and out of the fields. And they gathered them together upon heaps, and the land stained. 
But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessed day it's already been. Lord, I thank you for these sweet people, their heart for you, their love for you, Lord. And I pray that this morning the sweet Holy Spirit would do that office work that only He is able to do of pricking the human heart, Lord, of wooing and and convincing us and convicting us concerning our condition and our sin. I pray that He would have free reign and course and liberty, that we wouldn't do anything to stifle Him, to grieve Him or to quench Him today. But Lord, that we would yield unto You and Your Word as You seek to speak directly to our lives and our hearts. Bless each and every one that's here today. And may the work that's done redound unto Your glory and honor through all eternity. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm interested in the exchange between Moses and Pharaoh in verses 9 and 10. Now, the text before us is fairly self-explanatory. We'll do some preaching on it, say some things about it. But as we read through it, if you listen carefully, you know exactly what the lay of the land is. That God, in bringing about a plague upon Egypt, has brought forth untold numbers of frogs as a scourge, as a plague, as a nuisance, as a disruption upon the land of Egypt. Pharaoh, seeing that this is beginning to move beyond just an inconvenience, it's becoming a matter of health and it's becoming a matter of his political standing and the people's confidence in him, he goes to Moses and Aaron, or he sends for them, and he asks them to entreat the Lord to ask God to take the frogs out of the land. Notice what it says in verse number 9. Moses said unto Pharaoh, Glory over me. When shall I entreat for thee? and for thy servants and for thy people to destroy the frogs from thee and thy houses, that they may remain in the river only. Now you read what he said there. He said, Pharaoh, you name the time. Uh, the phrase glory over me, it, it's very likely a statement of politeness that uh, Moses is making. And what he's saying is, I'm deferring to you, Pharaoh. I'm allowing you to have the upper hand. You have the advantage in this. I am yielding and ceding to you. All you have to do is command me, when do you want these frogs to be taken away? Now, I don't know about you. I, we're getting ready to go up to church camp. There's all kinds of critters live at church camp. Somebody say amen. And it's not uncommon for there to be a, a, a snake slither through camp somewhere. Not uncommon for there to maybe be a, a, a mouse or a, a mouse or some mice that scurry across the cabin floor. You might even see a few frogs up there at camp. I remember one girl a couple years ago had a near-death experience with a raccoon one night. And uh, it wasn't really near-death. Near-death means she was walking by and it ran in front of her and that's all it took. That was it. That raccoon, I mean, that, that raccoon went back to its den and said, I just had a near-death experience with an eight-year-old girl. Amen. I want nothing dangerous happen. Don't get nervous. But there'll be all kinds of critters. And for five days, six days or so, we're going to be living with the critters. And some of them have names and social security numbers. Others don't. But I'd say this. If I had spent a few days living with frogs the way that they are described and depicted in our text this morning, I would say this, I'd be ready to get rid of the frogs just any old time God was willing to get rid of the frogs. If you had come to me and said, Toby, when do you want these frogs gone? I would have said yesterday, please, Mr. Moses, if you don't mind, as soon as is humanly possible. And yet we find in verse number 10 that Pharaoh answers in an amazing way. He said, tomorrow, tomorrow. Now, we know that he did not have to say tomorrow, that he could have said today, he could have said this very moment, because Moses replies and said, Be it according to thy word, that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. Pharaoh could have asked for these frogs to be removed immediately, but instead he chose to spend another night with these frogs 
in his kingdom. What an amazing thing to consider that this man, so prideful, so stubborn, so rebellious, would spend another night of discomfort just because he didn't want to yield to the Lord. It's easy to look in criticism at Pharaoh, but if I'm being honest, there's a lot worse takes place in the life of the average Christian, if we're being truthful. There's a lot worse takes place certainly in the life of the lost man that's under conviction for very often with more filthy things, more vile things, more dangerous and destructive things. When God is ready to take them away from our life, we say, no, thank you, Lord. I'll spend one more night with what I have. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning. Another night with the frogs. You see, there's more going on in this passage than is apparent in a casual reading. In fact, if you were to read through the entirety of the ten plagues that God sent upon Egypt, you would find that there is a fascinating wealth of cultural context and truth that is given. Have you ever asked yourself, why did God choose the plagues that He chose? I mean, if I was going to curate and design ten plagues, it probably wouldn't include things like frogs and flies and lice. I understand the boils. I understand the hailstones from heaven. I, I, I don't know if I would have turned a river into blood. But God was very specific in the plagues that He sent. And do you know that if you study the history of Egypt, what you'll find is that each one of these plagues was given to systematically defeat and disprove the pagan gods that the Egyptians worshipped. For instance, we can go through them. The first plague that was uh, given was when Moses turned the Nile River into blood. What a fascinating thing. He could have turned it into motor oil. He could have turned it into gravy. He could have turned it into sand or turned it into stone. But instead, he turned it into blood. Have you ever asked why that is? Well, the reason is because to the Egyptians, the Nile was believed to be the bloodstream of their god, Osiris. They believed literally that his life flowed through the Nile River and to the land and to the people. God turns it to blood. What was he trying to show? He was trying to show that in him alone is life and his life is the light of men. They said, uh, this is a God's bloodstream. God says, no, I'm going to show you. That's just a, a, an average, normal river. Uh, God was showing us that only in His blood is there life and is there hope. The second plague, which we'll mention here in a few moments, was the frogs. The third one was when God turned the dust of the sand into lice. And this was an indictment against the uh, Egyptian god Geb, who was supposedly the god of the earth or the god of the land. And I believe God was showing him that the earth is not Geb's. It is not some false gods, but the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The next was when he sent flies throughout the land. Now that's interesting. The Bible tells us in Psalm 78 that he sent diverse kinds of flies. When we think of a fly, we think of maybe a house flyer. I just come back from Florida, man. They got flies. I mean, I mean flies down there. They got flies that, that, that hiss at you and they got flies that taunt you and make fun of you and point out your social insecurities. They've got, they got serious flies down there. But uh, in the land of Egypt, they had all kinds of flies. We don't know exactly what kind, but certainly it's interesting that the Egyptians, they worshipped a flying bug called the scarab beetle. You can still even today, if you read anything or watch anything about Egyptian history, you'll see very often the symbol of that scarab beetle. And God says, you want to worship flies, you like flies, I'll give you flies. And He sends uh, swarms of flies into the land. You say, preacher, what was He trying to show? He was trying to show that He has the mastery even of Beelzebub, the Lord of flies, the devil Himself. He claims to control that facet of creation. But God says, in fact, I control it, not Him. 
The next was what the Bible calls a murane. It was a sickness that fell upon all the cattle in the land of Egypt. This was an indictment against their cattle god, Apis, who very often is seen in the form of a bull. You say, what was God showing them? He was showing them that He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And that includes their hills. Somebody say amen to that. The next he sends boils, great grievous boils upon the land of Egypt, all the inhabitants thereof. This was an indictment against their goddess of healing by the name of Sekhmet, who supposedly could drive away all diseases. God showing that it's by his stripes that we are healed. Next he sends great hailstones to fall from heaven. This was an indictment against their god of weather of the environment named Nut. And he was showing that he was the one that calmed the storm. He's the one that commands the clouds and the winds and the rain and the storms. Uh, the next was a great uh, feast of locusts or a great uh, drought of locusts was given upon the land. This was a indictment against their god of crops by the name of Seth. In other words, they had a God that they worshipped because they felt like He granted them good crops and good harvests and good yields. You say, preacher, what was God trying to show them? I think He was trying to show them that God giveth the increase and that God can take the increase, that it belongs to Him. The next day, uh, the Bible tells us that the whole land of Egypt was turned to darkness. Now, if you know anything about Egyptian history, you know that their chief god went by the name of Ra, and it was the sun god. They believed that was their preeminent chief god, that the sun, as it moved in its course over the heavens, was a manifestation of this god that they worshipped. They believed that Pharaoh was an earthly manifestation of that sun god, and God instead pulled a veil over the sun, turned it to darkness. What was He trying to teach them? He was trying to show them that He's the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turn. They were worshipping the sun god, God said, I'll fix that. I'll just turn the sun off. (laughs) You think He's God? I'm the God that controls the gods you think you serve. And then the very last one, of course, is He slays the firstborn of the land. And this was a direct assault against Pharaoh himself. You know, Pharaoh himself was considered a god in the land of Egypt. He was worshipped as a manifestation of God, as God, as both man and king and manifest deity. And what does God do? He takes Pharaoh's firstborn. Uh, Now, isn't that interesting? You know, the firstborn would have been the one that would have assumed the throne after Pharaoh. So not only does he strike Pharaoh, but he strikes his firstborn. What's he trying to say? He's trying to show that he, in fact, is the king of kings and there is none like him. All of these plagues that are given are not incidental. They're not accidental. They are given to systematically show that the false gods that they worshipped were, in fact, false gods. You remember what the Bible says in, uh, I believe it's Exodus chapter number 12, that God was executing judgment against all the gods of Egypt. Why did He do this? We read in our text, He did this that they might know that there is none like Him. But the Lord is God. You say, preacher, why does God bring turmoil into my life? Why does God bring chastening into my life if I don't obey Him? Why does He do that? He don't do it because He's mad at you. He's trying to show you who God is. Sometimes we get the idea that we're the God and the Master of our life. And God has to reassert His authority in our lives. So when we read through our text, we understand there's more going on here than just merely frogs coming up over the land. Just as with all of the other nine plagues that we mentioned, the frogs bore great significance. Uh, Egyptians worshipped frogs. They saw them as the symbol and manifestation of their goddess by the name of Heket. Uh, She was, uh, in their mind, the goddess of fertility. So I want you to think with me about three things this morning. We'll get into the preaching. We'll be done very swiftly. Number one, let me say a word about the significance of the frogs. 
The frogs were not chosen by accident or incident. It's not like God looked around and said, hey, we got a surplus of frogs here. Let's give everybody a frog, you know. It's not like He looked around and said, we're running a promotion. You open a checking account, we'll give you a free basket of frogs. The frogs were chosen as a message to the Egyptian. Well, why was that? Number one, because frogs were worshipped by the Egyptians. Consider what they depicted. The Egyptians worshipped frogs as symbols of their God He kept. Heket was the goddess of fertility. You'll often see her in Egyptian literature. She's drawn with the body of a woman and the head of a frog. Supposedly, Heket helped women deliver babies. To the Egyptians, frogs were a sign of fertility. Now think about this. When God caused the frogs to die, the Egyptians' uh, precious frogs that represented fertility became instead a symbol of death. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this. God went right for the very thing that they worshipped above Him. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised if we let idols in our life. And probably the idols in our life are not going to take the form of, uh, of symbolic totems that we worship as manifestations of, of God. There, there are places in the world that's quite common. Very often though, here in the West, the gods that we worship are merely things that we value and love and treasure above God. Listen, we think we can just have a God in our life. We can have an idol. We can let something displace the Lord in our life and it'll be untouched by God. No, my friend, God will go to the very thing that we have put on a pedestal. Uh, so uh, consider what they depicted. These frogs were symbolic. When they saw all these frogs, they would have immediately tied it to their idolatrous worship of this false goddess he kept. But then consider this. Consider how they were protected. I don't know if I'll get everything said about this I want to say, because some of this would be a little freewheeling, but I, but I want to make a few statements about this. Since frogs were sacred, the Egyptians were forbidden from killing them. In fact, it's been recorded that anyone who injured a frog could be severely punished. So the Egyptians could not kill the frogs, even though the frogs were the very things destroying their comfort and happiness. Let me make a statement here. You know, that's exactly how we are with our idols. We let it become so precious to us that we can't imagine living without it, even though it's the very thing that's destroying our lives. You see this in the lives of addicts. You see this in the lives of people that are broken, of people who are mentally, emotionally crippled in some way where they are so dependent. Some of y'all could give an amen right here. You got loved ones, you got family members that are in this very situation that the very thing that they could never think they could live without, the very thing that's destroying them, all they'd have to do is just reach down and step on it. But they won't do it because they done made it a God in their life and now it's got its hooks in them, its grips in them. Can I tell you, only God can give the deliverance needed in a situation like that. They were unwilling to slay these frogs. And so, because of their idolatry, they were slaves to their idols. And in the very same way, in your life and mine spiritually, when we let idols live in our life, it won't be long. We'll become slaves to that idol. We'll convince ourselves we cannot live without it. And we'll be unwilling to deal with it the way that God would have us to. So what was the significance of the frogs? Well, they were worshipped by the Egyptians. And because of that, we see that frogs were weaponized against the Egyptians. It ain't no mistake and it ain't no coincidence that God chose to overrun the land with frogs. What was God doing? What was the message God was sending in their life? Well, I would say this. Number one, we see that God gave them their fill of the frogs. 
The Egyptians revered and worshipped frogs, but now in the plague, the frogs would be multiplied and be running wild, ruining their lives. The Egyptians would be made miserable by their idols. The perpetual croaking would drive them nuts and rob them of any peace and any rest. These objects of worship would defile everything, even disrupting their ability to worship them. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this. If we cling to our idols, pretty soon God will say, all right, you can have all the idols that you want. The Bible says about Israel in her disobedience in the Old Testament that Ephraim is given to idols and idolatry, let her alone. God warns and warns and warns Israel to not depart from Him, to return to Him, to repent. And finally, when she will not, God says, I will go and I will leave her to her idols. You know, that's exactly what happened when the Israelites were taken into captivity into Babylon. They had been worshiping false gods. They had been worshiping Baal for generation after generation. God says, all right, you want Baal worship? I'll give you Baal worship. I'll put you right in the heart and center of Baal worship. And He sends them in captivity into Babylon. And there He cured them of their idolatry. It's not to suggest that Judaism today is not judicially blind and has turned away from the Messiah, but one of the things they've never struggled with since they came out of Babylon was polytheism, was the worship of a, a, of a plethora of different gods. You say, what happened, preacher, just as he had done to Egypt of old? He said, you want idolatry? I'll give you idolatry. Very often the things that we think we love, the things that we think are precious to us, the only reason we think that is because we can have them in moderation. But if God ever yielded us over to the influence of those things, it would destroy our life. The only reason that we tolerate it in our life is because we stay far enough away from it to never see the true ugliness of it. Hey, listen, I, I like ice cream. You like ice cream? Some of y'all said, preacher, don't talk about food. <laughs> I like ice cream, right? But I don't like a hundred gallons of it. Hey, listen, the idols in your life, you may think those things are precious. You may think they're pleasant. You may think they're harmless. But if God ever yielded you over to the full influence of them, they'd destroy your life. And listen, they will piece by piece destroy your life if you continue living in I, I see that God, He gave them their fill of the frogs. But then what else was God doing? I would say number two, not only did He give them their fill of the frogs, but God showed them the filth of the frogs. You know, it's interesting. There's only one time in the New Testament that frogs are mentioned. They're mentioned several times in the Old Testament, but only one time in the New Testament are they mentioned? What does it say about it? Well, Revelation 16, 13 says this, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false frog. Now listen, I'm not suggesting... If you've got a pet frog, I ain't mad at you. Somebody say amen. If you've got... Uh, I'm, uh, Brother Kerry wants me and him to go frog gigging uh, here pretty soon. I, and I'm all for it. I'll eat frog legs. That don't bother me. I don't think God's mad at it. But I do think God is suggesting that in the symbolism of Scripture, frogs are tied to things that are demonic, devilish, and spiritually unclean. What was God doing? Could you imagine what it was like for the Israelites? They thought these these uh, animals, when they were living in the pond, when they were living in the river, they thought of them as these uh, precious and noble and robust creatures that were manifestations of their goddess. But I bet they didn't feel that way after about a day or two. Every time they go to step out of bed, they step on a frog. Every time they go to open the refrigerator, I, I don't know if they had a refrigerator, but every time they go to open the refrigerator, a frog jumps out. Every time they reach for the kneading trough, they want to uh, make some dough so they can bake some bread. They can't even get in there because there's frogs everywhere. Pretty soon, it would. You ever? And if you hadn't, and if you're going to work camp, you'll know what I'm talking about in about two weeks. But you, you ever been in a situation where you just you, you didn't even have to see the dirt, you just felt dirty. You just you just felt just just felt just dirty. If you don't, come to camp. You'll learn. Amen? Don't you imagine after a few days 
those frogs weren't so cute anymore? Don't you imagine after a few days, maybe after some of their children getting sick from the contamination and the filth, maybe they weren't so harmless anymore? Don't you imagine after a few days of their life literally being destroyed and disrupted, they're not able to do anything. Don't you imagine they didn't seem so sweet and precious anymore? You know, our idols, when we feel like we can keep them in check, they seem harmless. But when they begin to grip and control our life, we find they're not as harmless as we'd like to think. You could go down the line, man, watch the beer commercials. Watch the beer commercials, you know. Uh, and, and now I guess watch the marijuana commercials because they got those too. Uh, watch all of And it's always everybody's having a good time. They're just enjoying themselves. They're just, listen, I, I've been around people uh, dying in a, 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 of drunkenness. I've been around people whose families were destroyed because of, I've been around people who because of drugs, their life was in pieces and, and shattered and devastated. It don't look like those commercials. You see, when, when the devil's trying to peddle that stuff to people, he dresses it up nice and shiny. But if you saw the real deal, if you saw it with all of the veneer, all of the, all of the tinsel and all of the paint that the world puts on it stripped away, you'd find it's an ugly thing. Why does God chasten us? He wants us to see just how filthy our sin is. He wants us to understand that it's not something cute. It's not something harmless. It's not something to be toyed with. I found it to be an interesting observation in my life. You know what I've seen? I've seen that Hollywood uses humor as the path to uh, desensitizing people to sin. Uh, th- there's a reason. Hey, listen, the late night shows, the, the, the comedy sketch shows, even some of the daytime shows are, are seed beds for iniquity and devilish, hellacious thought. Why is that? Because if they can get you to laugh about it, they've disarmed you about it. You know, that's true in our lives as well. When we make light of our sin, when we treat it as though it's inconsequential, well, you know, it's not really that big of a deal. The devil's got us. He's got us. Say, preacher, why would God send all these frogs? He wanted to understand that frogs might be cute when there's one or two. Frogs might be cute when it's sitting in an aquarium. But you just let them overrun your life, it ain't going to seem so cute anymore. And by the way, those very frogs that might have seemed cute, just one or two of them, it wouldn't be long. There'd be hundreds of them. Hundreds of them. So I think God showed them the filth of the frogs. But then I would say this. I mean, surely this is true. God changed their feelings about the frogs. What was God trying to do? Well, God was showing the foolishness of the Egyptian gods, bringing the Egyptians to the point where they would detest them. See, what becomes an idol to us will someday become a plague and a burden. Anything that gets between us and God will eventually curse us. God does not tolerate competition. Our idols must go. He will make them a real problem to us if we do not forsake them. I'd say this, that probably nary a single Egyptian ever wanted to see a frog again in their natural born life when it was all said and done. Preacher, why does God chasten us? So that hopefully at the end of it you say, I don't never ever want to see that sin in my life ever again. I've seen how it's destroyed. I've seen how it's consumed. I've seen how it's burnt my life to the ground. And I don't want any of it anymore. I want it all to be gone. So I see the significance of the frogs here. But then think with me for a moment about the saturation of the frogs. It says in verse 3 that the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up. And then he lists some places the frogs were going to go. Here's what I want you to think about with me. When our sin and disobedience to God brings chastening, you'll find that there's no getting away from that chastening. The things that we think could give us relief will give us no relief. I'm sure they thought to themselves, hey, listen, these frogs, they're, they're precious to us, they're noble to us, they're divine to us, but pretty soon they hated them. They wanted to get away from them, but there wasn't nowhere that they could go. In fact, notice, let's just walk through this as a catalog of truths here. Number one, what does he say? They'll, they'll go up and they'll come into thine house. 
Now, I don't know about you, but the first thing I want to do, if I'm out, if I'm outside and there's flies, there's mosquitoes, there's something, you know where I want to run? I want to run to the house. I want to get in the house because I know at least if I'm in there, I, I, the, I may be trapped, but the mosquitoes trapped too. Somebody say, man, I can track it down and I can kill it then. We want to get in a place of sanctuary. But you know what they found? They found that their home, though it was their inner sanctum, their place of peace and respite and rest, it was not a place of sanctuary. You know what I find? When God's dealing with us, there's no peace in retreat. Running won't help. Sanctuary won't help. There's no place we can run from the chastening of God. God will deal with us no matter where we are at. Very often we'll think, if I can just get away from the house of God, I won't have to listen to that loud preacher anymore. I won't have to listen to things he said. No, listen, i got news for you. I I wish I was good enough to preach the chastening of God on a sinner's life, but I'm not. It's not me that's uh, making you uncomfortable. It's Him that's making you uncomfortable. Truth is, He don't need me to do it. He can do it with you sitting down at the McDonald's. He can do it with you sitting down at the Walmart. He can do it with you sitting in the recliner. It don't matter where you're at, God can deal with you. They found there was no peace in retreat. I'd say, uh, no, notice this, this next thing. It says this, they'll come into thine house. And, and I'd probably think this. If I, if I walked in my living room, man, there's frogs everywhere. I'd think, oh man, what a mess. Uh, you know what? I'm going to run back to my bedroom. And that's what they did. But notice what it says. They'll come up into thy bedchamber and upon thy bed. In other words, we could say this. There's no peace in retreat. But number two, there's no peace in rest. Sleep won't help. <laughs> I've slept in some funny situations before in my life. I mean, I've slept in situations you think nobody can sleep, but I, I, I just I have a hard time believe I can sleep with frogs in my bed. Probably that would lend towards some restless nights. You know what else lends to some restless nights? Disobeying the Lord, not giving God His will and way in our life. And you know what'll happening? Uh, listen, I, I'm sure that croaking was incessant. That ain't nothing compared to the conviction of the Holy Ghost. When God's speaking to your heart, it'll be a lot louder than those frogs croaking. And you'll find there's no place of rest. There's no place of peace. That sleep won't help you. Then he says this, will come into the house of thy servants and upon thy people. Now, probably if I was in this miserable situation that Pharaoh's in, I'd think to myself, well, at least I can go and just sit up. I can't sleep. I, there ain't nowhere to sit down. Everything's nasty. I'm just going to go sit by the fire and I'm going to go talk to my my friends, my servants, my family. You know, here's the problem. None of them wanted anything to do with him. You know why? He was miserable company. He was the reason they were going through what they were going through. You know what I find? You with me this morning? Go ahead go ahead and burp and get rid of that. All right? You're, you're all right. You're with me. Hey, listen. You know what I find? I find this, that the chastening of God will sour my relationships. I find that I can't be okay with folks when I'm not okay with God. Now, that don't mean that every time that somebody's not okay with me or I'm not okay with them, it's always because I'm not okay with God. I've heard preachers say that. You can't, you can't have a problem with somebody and, and be okay with God. Man, I hope not. i got problems with lots of folks. Somebody give me an amen right there. But I would say this. You cannot be wrong with God and it not affect your relationships with other people. They probably, Pharaoh thought, well, at least I will find some, some peace, some relief in my relationships. But he found there was no peace in relationship. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. You know why? Because his sin had affected everyone else. His sin was destroying their life, just like it was destroying his life. When I, when my life is not where it needs to be, and there are times in my life, just like with yours, where I'm not where I need to be, I find out it disrupts the whole home. I find out it, it creates a, a sour attitude of bitterness. Uh, an uncomfortableness in the entirety of the whole home. And I find that this sanctuary won't help, sleep won't help, but socializing won't help either. 
We cannot find peace in the arms of those who our sin is destroyed. Notice what he says next. He says, they're not just going to come into the house of thy servants and upon thy people. They'll come into thine ovens and into thine eating troughs. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands here, but let me just say this. For some of us, food is therapeutic. Or as Barney used to say, therapeutic. (laughs) You know, sometimes when you're troubled, when you're grieved, that's why we call it comfort food. Comfort food. Uh, and we don't we don't reach for the rice cake. We reach for the chicken and dumplings. Uh, we, we don't we don't reach for the celery. We reach for the mac and cheese. We reach for the fried chicken because we find some sense of peace in that, some sense of comfort in that. And while nothing really ought to be our source of peace, but the Lord, that ain't gonna stop me from eating comfort food. Somebody say amen to that. But you know the problem was with them, even when they tried to find peace, Pharaoh probably said, well, I can't sleep. Nobody wants to talk to me. At least I can get my cook to go fix me something. I can enjoy a good meal. But here's the problem. Uh, there wasn't no way to fix a good meal because that, that sin had infected everything in his life. You know what I found? God takes even the pleasures of our life and turns them to ashes in our mouth when we refuse to obey Him. If you let sin in your life, it won't be long. The things that used to give you enjoyment and pleasure won't give you enjoyment and pleasure anymore. Why does God do that? Because He don't want no place for you to be able to run to. There, there was no uh, pleasure in, in refreshment, no peace in sustenance. But then I say this, look at verse 4. It says, The frog shall come upon both thee and upon thy people and upon thy servants. Now, I understand none of this has transpired yet. This is God saying through uh, Aaron, this is what's going to happen to you. But you know, probably it entered through Pharaoh's mind. He probably thought to himself, you know, maybe God will do this to everyone else, but surely He won't do this to me. I'm the Pharaoh of Egypt. But God disabuses him of that thought and reminds him that there's no peace, not only in retreat or in rest or in relationships or in refreshment, but there's no peace in rank either. We could say this as status won't help. Uh, there, there's no, we never get big enough or high enough that God cannot deal with us. I know we live in a country where uh, industries can be deemed and termed too big to fail. I know we live in a country where politicians can be deemed and termed too big to arrest and too big to deal with. But i got news for you. Ain't nobody too big for God to deal with. He dealt with the very Pharaoh of Egypt who in those men's minds and in Pharaoh's mind was God Himself. God said, I don't care who you think you are. I I will deal with you according to my will and according to my word. Uh, you, you know, it's interesting, even, even the book of Psalms emphasizes this. It says in Psalms 105.30 that their land brought forth frogs in abundance in the chambers of their kings. No one was exempt from it. Sometimes we get the idea if we've served God for a while. And listen, I hope you have served God for a while. I hope you've been faithful. I hope you've got a long record and resume of serving God. But it don't matter how long that resume is. Don't get thinking that God won't deal with you now if there's sin in your life. That's true for me. And it's true for you. So I see the saturation of the frogs. But you know, really, if we look at this whole passage, the most amazing thing of it all is not that God deals with their false God. It's not that God brings forth frogs upon the land. It's not that God commands the frogs to go away. The most amazing thing of this whole passage is Pharaoh's decision to sleep with the frogs. Why did he choose to do that? Well, notice a few simple thoughts with me and we'll be done this morning. Notice first off the source of Pharaoh's problem. Why was it Pharaoh was going through this? Well, it was because he refused to yield to the Lord. He would not obey God. God had said, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh said, I'm sorry, I will not do that. But you know what that means? Oftentimes, blame gets a bad rap. We blame blame. (laughs) 
Sometimes we, we look at it as a wholly negative thing when God addresses our disobedience. But you know, really it's not a burden, it's a blessing. The, the greater burden, the greater curse would be if God never let us know uh, what's wrong with our life. The very fact that the sweet Holy Ghost convicts us and shows us where we're wrong and why we're wrong is a grace and mercy of God. For only when we know what's wrong can we get things right. And so God speaks to Pharaoh and he leaves the ball in Pharaoh's court. Listen to what it says in verse number 9. Moses said unto Pharaoh, Glory over me, when shall I entreat for thee and for thy servants and for thy people to destroy the frogs from thee and thy houses that they may remain in the river only. Pharaoh, it's your choice. You say the word. All you have to do is say the word. And all this goes away. He said, verse 10, tomorrow, Moses said to him, be it according to thy word. At the end of the day, what was the source of Pharaoh's problem? Well, the choice was his. It was his words that were condemning him. Can I tell you this? Hey, listen, I, I know we all like to get help from folks, but can't nobody help you be right with God? It's your choice. Nobody can make you be right with God. Nobody can make you disobey God. You and you alone have the choice. And by the way, we bear the blame ourselves and alone for our own lives. Pharaoh could have said, well, it was this person's fault, that person's fault. But at the end of the day, it was his words, his choice. And if you listen, if you want God's help, if you want his pardon, if you want his forgiveness, if you want his peace, all you have to do is ask. He's waiting for you. I see the source of his problem. But then I would say this. Not only do I see the source of Pharaoh's problem, I see the force of Pharaoh's pride. Pharaoh was so prideful and rebellious that he would spend another night with these nasty, filthy frogs. Have you ever wondered why he did that? Have you ever tried to deconstruct what might be going through a man's mind? And I'm not trying to make assumptions or live in the, in the world of theological fantasy, but I don't think it's inappropriate to ask ourselves, what was Pharaoh hoping would happen? I think there's really only two possibilities as to why he refused to ask for them to go away at the at the very immediate. One was, maybe he was hoping for rescue. It's possible, Brother Charlie, he was sitting there thinking, if I just buy a little time, these frogs are going to go away on their own. You see, I think it was still in the back of Pharaoh's mind that this might not be a miracle. He knows the truth of the matter. But he's probably trying to convince himself, as many Bible deniers and as many critics and skeptics do today, that this was just a natural occurrence, that the Nile turning the blood had caused the frogs to run up on the land. And God makes it plain, no, the way you're going to know this was a miracle is because I'm going to take them away whenever you say you want them to be taken away. But probably in his mind he was thinking, you know, maybe maybe that isn't what this is. Maybe a little bit of time and things are just going to smooth out on their own. You know, often while we, and this is the big word, that we use for it, procrastinate, right? Procrastinate. Put it off till tomorrow. You know why we do that? Because we're hoping things will work out on their own and we're not going to have to bow the knee to God after all. Uh, we're hoping it's just a run of bad luck. You know, there ain't uh, luck and the Bible cannot coexist. We either have a providential God that knows what He's doing or things are just up to the luck of the draw. I don't believe it's up to luck. I don't believe anything happens in your life or my life is up to luck. I believe God is in control of all of it. And probably, though, we'll say, well, maybe it's just a streak of bad luck. Maybe things will naturally get better. Can I tell you something? Even if things got better, you still got to deal with this thing. I'll just say that again. I ain't done that once, but here I'm doing it now, this sermon. I'm just going to say that again. Even if things got better, you still got to deal with it. You say, well, preacher, if things get better, maybe it'll be all right. No, no, no. Your sin ain't going to go away. It lies at the door, as God told Cain. 
Sin lieth. At the, you're either going to deal with it or you're not. And i got news for you. The worst thing that could happen would be for God to dial back the pressure while your sin is still in your life. God is dialing up the pressure to get the sin out of your life. What would it mean if He dialed back the pressure? He'd be giving you over to that disobedience. Even you say, preacher, it might get a little bit better. Well, maybe it will, maybe it won't. I highly doubt it will. If God's chasing you, it ain't going to get better. If God's chastening you, it's not going to get better. But I would say this, even if it did, you'd still have to deal with your sin. Or your life is going to wind up an absolute mess. I think maybe he was hoping to rescue, uh, that rescue would come to him. But then, you know, there's a possibility he didn't even think it through. There's a possibility this was just a gut level thing because not only was he hoping for rescue, maybe he was just hating the idea of repenting. Maybe he just loathed the idea of having to bow his knee before God. You know, that's in every one of us. I don't care who you are. Your flesh does not want to bow before God. My flesh does not want to bow before God. That's the reason when we're in disobedience and God is bringing the pressure and the chastening in our life, that's the reason for that tension in our heart and in our life is because we know there's only one way out, but we don't want to accept there's only one way out because we don't want to bow the knee. That ain't the new man talking in you. That's the old man talking in you. That ain't the spirit. That's the flesh in you. You know why? Because the flesh cannot be subject to the law of God. He is unwilling to. Your flesh, my flesh, is a rebel. A dirty, stinking rebel that would rather go to its grave than bow its knee before God. You say, preacher, well, how can I bow my knee before God? You've got to make that flesh go to its grave. You've got to mortify self. You've got to put it to death. Pharaoh, uh, he living in this dispensation and being a lost man, he had no new man living within him. All it was was his flesh, and that's what Pharaoh is. He's like an avatar for what the flesh does. It's rebellion. It's insolence against God. He was willing to spend another night in that mess, that filth, that corruption, that misery, rather than admit that God was right and that He was in control. I, I think this, I, I think probably uh, he was unwilling to repent uh, to the Lord. So I see the source of Pharaoh's problem. I see the force of Pharaoh's pride. And then finally, I want you to notice this and we'll be done. Notice the course of Pharaoh's procrastination. So preacher, what do you mean? Well, where did it lead? Notice what it says. Verse 13. The Bible says the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, out of the villages, and out of the fields. And they gathered them together upon heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and hearken not unto them as the Lord had said. Where did his procrastination lead him? It produced two things. One, think with me for a moment about the heaps that it left. The Bible says that there was heaps upon heaps upon heaps of dead frogs. Can I give you a... I, and I trust you're spiritually mature enough to receive the truth I'm about to give you. I'm glad for the grace of God, aren't you? I'm glad for God's forgiveness. Listen, I'm glad He can give back years that the locusts have eaten and the cankerworm have eaten. But you know, the longer we live in sin, the more filth, decay, and deadness that there'll be pile up in our life. Some of y'all got a few years behind you and maybe some experiences you wish you didn't have behind you could lay testimony. You got some heaps in your life. Some things that you just wish you had just bowed the knee to God and got it right and lived right and done right. But you know what those frogs were? They bore testimony to Pharaoh's rebellion. And for days and weeks and probably months afterwards, they had to live with the stink of Pharaoh's disobedience. You know, it's a real shame, and adults say this all the time to young people, and and I agree with it. We ought to say it to young people. We ought to say it to old people. We ought to say it to all people. Listen, uh, don't uh, don't 
Put God off. Don't wait on God. There will be things you regret in your life for years to come if you give the devil one more day of your life. One more day of your life. Imagine this, if he had just relented to the Lord, I don't know how quickly or how abundantly the frogs came up. Might have been a few frogs at first. Might have been a whole mountain of frogs at first. But I'll tell you this, if he had repented earlier, there would have been less dead frogs. I don't know about you, but I'm on the less dead frogs list. Just as a general rule in my life. If you're, if you ever wonder, I wonder if preachers on the more dead frogs or the less dead frogs. I'm on the less dead frogs list. Had he repented earlier, there would have been less decay, less taint, uh, less uh, scourge, less corruptness in his life and in his land. What a shame it is in our lives that there has to be a record, a testimony in our lives of disobedience that we'll have to live with for the rest of our life. There's people in this room wish, would beg God, would give every penny in their bank account if they could get rid of some of those heaps in their life. Some things that they did that they regret, that they ran from God, that they lived in disobedience. Maybe when they were a lost person and God was trying to save them and reach them, but they put God off and dismissed and disregarded God. And now there's heaps upon heaps in their life that they have to live with. I think about the heaps that it left. But then I thought about this. Look at verse 15. The Bible says when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. I thought about the hardness that it left. You know, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart is a common theme throughout Scripture. Much time is given in the New Testament discussing that hardness of his heart because it is symbolic of the hardness of all mankind's heart towards God. You know what I find? That procrastination led to a harder heart. It fed itself. You know why? Because he put God off and then when God gave relief, his flesh boasted itself against God and said, look at all we got away with. And it turned out all right after all. You know, we can only live in disobedience so many times for so long before it starts to take its toll on our spiritual perspective. There's a reason the Bible says that we've got to have faith as of a child. Uh, the faith of a child is used as being the epitome, the apex of what faith should be. You know this to be true in your life, and I know it to be true in my life. There's some things I wish I'd never learned about. Some things I wish I never knew about. Some scars that I bear that I wish I had, had never gone through. And uh, most adults will tell you, hey, listen, experience is a good teacher, but it's an expensive teacher. It's far better to learn it by the testimony of other people. And in your life and mine, when we live in disobedience, procrastinate, put God off, say, I'll, I'll do it another day. Every time we do that, it becomes easier the next time to do it. And easier and easier and easier and easier. If you were to study the life of Pharaoh, what you would find is that it is a progressive path of hardening that his heart is going upon. There are times it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Times it just says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. There are times that it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You say, preacher, which is true. All three are true. God did not harden Pharaoh's heart against Pharaoh's free will, choice, and volition. Pharaoh was doing things that contributed to the hardening of his heart. But then it is just the natural tendency of man for their heart to grow hard against God. You say, preacher, how did that happen? Well, part of it was this. Part of it was putting off God, putting off God, putting off God. Your flesh begins to get the idea that it is conning God. And it deceives you into believing, well, I lived in sin another week, another month, another year. Got to enjoy my sin and God forgave me anyway. God forgave me anyway. I, I thought to myself, how could a man like Pharaoh walk past piles of dead, rotting frogs and think, boy, we got away with it, didn't we? But Christians walk by piles of deadness in their life. 
entire seasons of their life that are just chalked up to waste and to nothingness and walk around and their flesh says, see, we got away with it after all. There's a great danger in playing games with God because sooner or later you'll start to think you're getting good at it. But the truth of the matter is, ain't nobody good at playing games with God. We never win. God is always the winner. But we'll start to convince ourselves that we're winning, that we're defeating God, that we're getting our will in our way. So here's the thing I desire for you this morning. God's dealing with you. And you're saying, well, preacher, when, when should I, what should I do? Should I get right with God right now? God's saying, it's up to you. It can be today if you want it to be today. And there's a tendency in your flesh to say tomorrow. Can I say this? Tomorrow there's going to be more heaps. Tomorrow there'll be more hardness. Tomorrow it'll be a more difficult decision. And tomorrow it'll be easier to put God off till tomorrow. I won't go through all of it, but you know this to be true. Tomorrow is an interesting word, isn't it? It's not like Monday or Tuesday or, or Wednesday. It's not like April this or July this. Tomorrow is a constantly moving target. It's always tomorrow. You've heard the statement, right? Tomorrow never come. People will say they're going to get right with God tomorrow never get right with God. You know why? Because if you're going to get right with God, you're going to have to get right on it today. Everybody that ever got born again got born again on today. Everybody that ever got right with God got right with God on today. Hey, you say, well, preacher, are you saying it was on one single day? No, I'm saying to them it was a today. They were not putting it off till tomorrow. They were making the decision in that moment to yield to the Lord. So the question is, you say, preacher, I'll do it tomorrow. Well, you can say that and you'll wind up never doing it. Or you can say, no, today's the day of salvation. Or if you're saved by the grace of God already, you can say, today's the day I yield to the Lord and let Him have His will and way in my life. Don't spend another night with that fill. Don't spend another night in disobedience. Don't give another night to the devil. Let today be the day that you yield to the Lord. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. Father, I pray that You would bless this invitation, that it would magnify the Lord Jesus. And Lord, that if there's any heart that You're dealing with about any matter, be it small, be it large, whatever it might be, I pray that today they would get their life right. Today they would yield their heart to You. Today they would let You have Your will and Your way. We ask it in Jesus' name.